we're doing church history literacy. We started out uh, with the, the New Testament and Pentecost. And over the last two years, we've made it up into the 1800s. And so today we're going to talk about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I believe that he's my favorite preacher in the history of Christianity. And so I'm going to take two weeks with him, if you don't mind. And we'll talk about him a little bit today. You'll get a letter from me in the mail reminding you of next week. Because next week, we've got a special Spurgeon experience. Uh, we will be splurging on Spurgeon next week. And uh, in what ways? Well, there's some surprises involved, maybe. So uh, uh, come back, please. Now, with that, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been to what sociologists and religious people now call, scholars call, a mega church? Anybody ever been to a mega church? Okay, everybody can raise your hand because this is a mega church. A mega church is defined as a church over 2,000 members. And uh, um, these are the really large churches. How many church, uh, churches in the Southern Baptist Church, Lewis? 44,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention alone. In terms of size, where do we rank? We're either 12th or 13th largest out of 44,000. Okay? We are considered a megachurch here, but we're different. Thank you, God. We are different than a lot of the megachurches that are being studied. Our daughter at Pepperdine, Gracie, sent me an email about three weeks ago and attached to it was an article she had read for one of her classes. Oh, Gracie's there. Hi, Gracie. She's in this weekend. She came in to see her sister get crowned homecoming queen. And uh, um, so Gracie sent me an article about megachurches. And the article was, was very well written. It was very scholarly. And it was saying, here are the problems with some of the megachurches. And Gracie put a note on it, or, or actually we were talking about it verbally afterwards. And she said, you know, I was just so glad that even though we go to a megachurch, ours is not that way. And she was right. Well, I want to tell you about historically the first megachurch. It was a church that was pastored by Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s. And we're going to talk about it today. And as we do it, I want you to consider, I mean, this was a church. Here's a picture of the inside. I don't know how well you can see it. 6,000 people seated there and standing there. This was, it grew from 232 members when he started to 5,311, but was always attended by many more. You see, you didn't get to be a member unless he interviewed you personally. Their membership class made ours look like toast and oatmeal, okay? And, and ours makes most churches look like toast and oatmeal. So, so, but, but he would interview you personally. They had a huge attendance outside. They had to give tickets. They didn't take a contribution. They sold tickets to their service. Instead of having a contribution, they'd have special contributions, but they'd sell tickets. And, and about once every four or five weeks, he would just stand up and they would announce, please, please, next Sunday, no ticket holders, no members show up. All of you, all of you members, don't come next week. We've got to have room for the visitors. They had that many visitors. It's interesting. This, they did, he didn't walk into the building that would seat 6,000 when there were only 232 members. But how did he grow, or how did God grow, this mega church? It's an interesting thing for scholars to study. Because if we compare this church that couldn't handle all of the visitors to the mega churches of today... I looked at some of the news accounts of some of these mega churches that we have today, and they had some interesting uh, 
uh, names for the churches. They grow because they teach a Disney Jesus. That's what the secular media called it. A Disney Jesus. Gee, come, learn of Jesus and have fun. Okay? Well, I'm not saying it, it's got to be boring. Okay? I'm not saying that at all. But a Disney Jesus? Or how about this? Religion light. One particular megachurch in our area is, seems to be famous because you can go through a whole service and an entire sermon and not even hear about Jesus and sin. Because this is, this is more a pep rally to make you feel real good about who you are. Or it's a self-help savior. You want saving? Well, here's a self-help method of how to do it. Do these three or do these five things. I remember when this church was undergoing its pastor's search for our new pastor. And the search committee was there. And everybody was saying, pray for him, pray for him, pray for him. I'm telling you, we were some of the ones praying because we didn't know. Becky and I didn't know real well many of the people on the pastor's search committee. We knew a few and had great respect for him. But I applaud so much our pastor's search committee. Because in a church like this, it would have been so easy for them to go out and find someone who preached a self-help savior. Who came in and just preached these messages based upon the latest psychobabble book that they've read. And tried to plug it into some scripture. And, and we didn't get that. We got a man of God who is in a mega church the same way that Charles Spurgeon had his. Preaches Jesus. Preaches Jesus crucified. And crucified to save sinners. That's why this isn't a social club. Or a rotary meeting. It's a church. It's a church built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. And that's the way Charles Spurgeon's church was. So I'm excited to tell you about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. An incredible man. An incredible preacher. He was born in June of 1834 in a little town called Kelvedon, England. It's in Essex. And I don't know how well these pictures are going to show up because we've hit a time in history where we actually have some pretty decent etchings and pictures that are actually true. This gentleman was one of 17 children born to John and Eliza Spurgeon. That was his daddy. His daddy was a preacher. A dissenting preacher, if you remember the dissenters. We've talked about them a lot in England. Not in the Church of England. He was a dissenter. His mother, Eliza. His grandfather was a preacher too, a dissenting preacher. When Spurgeon was a year old, I think his mom was pregnant again. In fact, she'd probably had three or four kids in that first year of his life, based upon the way she was putting them out. But she, uh, <laughs> she... She's pregnant again, and she did have difficulty. Nine of her children died as infants the first two years of their lives. And so it was a tough situation. But uh, uh, Spurgeon, little Charlie, as she would call him Charlie, was taken to his grandparents to live when he was just one year old. Now, his grandparents also had their youngest child living with them, a, a daughter named Anne. It was his Aunt Anne. And it's real touching because little Charlie grows up under his grandparents' care from the age of one to seven. And really under his Aunt Anne, who had not yet found a husband and did not have any children, and took little Charlie under her wing. 
yesterday while Gracie was home, she had this few little amount of time at home. But I was touched because our youngest, Sarah, has this monstrous project due at school. And it's one of these projects, Mrs. Poe, that the teachers give for the parents to do. But I've decided that's okay because it's, it's kind of the, it's in essence us doing the homework that we didn't do when we were children. <laughs> because our parents, my dad had to build the Alamo out of Baselwood when I was in third grade. Trust me, I did not do that project. Me with an X-Acto knife in third grade is a formula for missing digits, you know. And, um, so I didn't do my project, so we have to do Sarah's. Um, hers is a PowerPoint presentation about the community. Well, uh, Gracie graciously stepped in yesterday and said, this would be a wonderful time for me to spend with Sarah, her eight-year-old little baby sister. And so the big college girl sat down and did some of this homework with her. And I'm sitting there thinking, how touching is it? You know, we've got a situation where uh, Sarah, the same one, and, and Rebecca, who's now 10, you know, if a week goes by and they haven't spent the night at mom's house, they're upset. You know, and, and, and Sarah, you can just see the gleam in her eye when she says, I need to use the phone and call Mimi. And then 15 minutes later, Mimi's calling us saying, can Sarah spend the night tonight? <laughs> There's something really special about family. And family, if you are a grandparent, take some time out for your grandkids. Make a mental effort to do it because you will influence them for God in ways that we, their parents, cannot. It's a fact. And we as parents, we as aunts and uncles, be careful because these children in our families, whether they're our direct children or not, they look up to us. Aunt Anne is who taught little Charlie Spurgeon how to read, how to walk, how to talk. And when she taught him how to read, baby, she taught him how to read. At age six, he's reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, which most of us would not let our children read because it talks about the horrors of people being burned at the stake and the smell of their flesh and things like that. And reading Pilgrim's Progress, which we covered here about a month or so ago. Pilgrim's Progress becomes Spurgeon's favorite book, by the way. He reads it over a hundred times before he dies. But this is the way he's brought up. This is how he's brought up reading. Spurgeon doesn't really go to school much. He goes to school a couple of years, that's all. Very limited education, but a brilliant guy. He's got a near photographic memory for anything he reads. He reads it, it's there. No formal divinity training. He uh, uh, doesn't, doesn't, grows up pretty godly kid, don't get me wrong. I mean, when he's at his grandparents, Spurgeon is seven years old when he hears his, his grandfather moaning about this poor fella who's not, uh, not coming to church anymore. He's backslidden. He's spending all of his time in the local pub getting sauced, okay? And little Charlie Spurgeon hears about it, so he marches down to the pub. Seven-year-old boy goes inside. This is the way he tells the story later. He says, I'll kill old Elijah Rhodes. Then he goes down to the saloon, finds him and says, What doest thou here, Elijah, sitting with the ungodly? 
And you, a member of a church, breaking your pastor's heart, my granddaddy. I'm ashamed of you. I wouldn't break my pastor's heart, that's for sure. Then he turned around and walked out. The fella got kind of angry. But after some thought, he repented. He came back to church. And the fella on his deathbed said, you know, preacher... I never learned to read, so I couldn't read the Bible. But I counted all the pages. Because I wanted God to know I took it seriously. Interesting story. So this little lad, he grows up. Now, he grows up a good kid. When he's 14, he writes a book about the Catholic Church and problems he has with the Pope. But in the midst of all of that, he comes to God with a conversion. And let me tell you how it happens. Even though he's a wonderful kid... And this is a kid who, at the age of 15, is out trampling through the snow in January of 1850 to go to church. All by himself. The snow's coming down so hard, he can't get there. He's blinded. He doesn't know what he's going to do. So he turns down this little alley for some shelter. And he hears some singing at the primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. So he ducks in for some cover. Now, Spurgeon had a major problem at the time. Here's his problem. Even though he was a better kid than 98% of the kids we'll ever see, or his generation would ever see, he still knew his righteousness was not good enough. He had a real tender heart. And, and the words he uses to describe himself is, he says, I was undone, I was condemned, I was lost, I was hopeless, and I was helpless. When he stumbles into this church on a Sunday morning. And I would love to tell you the story eloquently. But I'd much rather read it to you. Because it's kind of funny. The way he says it. This is from Spurgeon's autobiography. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now. Had it not been for the goodness of God. In sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly they gave people a headache. But that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I didn't care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. The minister, there are a number of accounts of this that I've read because Spurgeon used it as a sermon illustration over 250 times, so you get more details in different places. You know, some guy just finally, when it's apparent the minister's not showing up, some guy just sort of gets up and walks up there to preach. You know, you only got a dozen or 15 people in there, so whatever. Anyway, a thin-looking man, a shoemaker or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it's important that preachers should be taught. This man was really stupid. As a result, he was obliged to stick to the text. 
for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, and we've got a picture of the actual interior of the church in the pulpit. Here was his text, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Spurgeon says, he didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, and here he's quoting the preacher. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot. It ain't lifting your finger. It's just, look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You can be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Now, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but there's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. You have no business doing anything except to look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Now, Spurgeon continues, when he'd gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, which would mean one of these seats here under the, the railing or under the overhang. He looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I hadn't been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. It was a good blow and it struck right home. He continued and said, you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you'll be saved. <laughs> Spurgeon writes, then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Christ. Look. Look, look, you have nothing to do but to look and to live. Spurgeon says at that moment, I had a vision. He says it wasn't a vision to my eyes, a physical one, but it was one in my heart. And I saw Jesus and I looked and I saw him as I'd never seen him before. And in that instant, I knew what it was to believe. He says, I went home a changed man, boy. My mother, when I walked in the door, said, there's something different about you and your countenance. And he got to tell his mother about it. Over the next four months, Spurgeon spent time in the scriptures trying to study and learn what God would have him do. And after four months of study, Spurgeon decided he needed to be baptized as a believer. He'd been christened as, a, as an infant, but that was different. So Spurgeon sought out the nearest Baptist church to get baptized Unfortunately for Spurgeon, it was about eight miles away. So Spurgeon, on the, after consulting with his parents and getting there okay, on the morning of his mother's birthday, walks the eight miles to church to get baptized all by himself. But before he does it, he wakes up two hours early so he can have some private devotion time with God. This is a 15-year-old kid. 
two hours of devotional time. He says, I remember that walk so well because it was so filled with, the, you know, God gave me a several hour walk so that I could commune with him on the way. Spurgeon gets there. He'd never seen an adult baptism before. So they want Spurgeon to lead the way. He says, no, I'd rather lag back and kind of watch how this stuff happens. I'm afraid I might mess it up for everybody who's following me. So he goes down in the water and he's baptized. He comes back and his mother says to him, Charles, I've often prayed to the Lord to make you a Christian, but I never asked that you might become a Baptist. <laughs> Spurgeon says, I couldn't resist it. I just had to answer her mother. The Lord's answered your prayer with his usual bounty and given you exceedingly abundantly above what you ask or thought. And that's his conversion story, which meant so much to him. He told it countless times throughout his ministry. Next Spurgeon point. Let's talk about his ministry for a moment. Spurgeon's preparation for ministry involved really an interesting route. As I told you, he didn't go to Oxford. You couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge unless you were a member of the Church of England at the time. As a dissenter, he could not go. But he didn't go to Oxford. He didn't receive any formal divinity training. But he read and he read and he read and he read. And he remembered all that he read. He had an exhaustive library himself. His father and his grandfather had books and books and books. He read the Puritan classics. He read so much. He was a big proponent of reading. He didn't disdain formal education. He started a preaching college that still exists today. But he, he was a, a, a big proponent of personal study. This fellow, and through his adult life, would read six books a week with a near photographic memory. And they weren't books like Dune Buggy Baby. Okay? I mean, he's, he's, reading, <laughs> he's reading some stout books. Okay? Between his reading and his heart for God, he was prepared for ministry. And at the age of 16, starts preaching. Gets asked to preach at this little town called Water Beach, which was, it needed the criminal judge. They had a bunch of hooligans and thieves in the town. And so this little church of 40, Spurgeon shows up as a 16-year-old, and he's not happy just to be the 16-year-old preacher at this church. He goes out into the road, and he finds all of the hooligans and, and all of the thugs and all of the thieves and the robbers. And he says, come on, you have to change your life, and you need Jesus, and come to church. And he goes out, and he brings them to church and totally transforms the whole town. I mean the whole town in just a matter of years. His church has got 400 attending it. And on the right day, at the right time, at the right place, where Spurgeon's been invited to give a Sunday school message, there just happens to be a fellow named Mr. George Gould who's visiting from London. He's from the New Park Street Chapel in London, one of London's oldest and most prestigious Baptist churches. And they need a preacher. And he hears this little kid up there, Spurgeon. And he goes back and he tells his church about him. They said, well, we can't rightly invite a 19-year-old to pastor this incredible, austere place. But we can invite him in to give a sermon. So they sent an invitation to Spurgeon. Would you come preach for our church? And Spurgeon got it and thought it was a mistake. 
but found out, no, it was not a practical joke. They really wanted him. So Spurgeon went there and he preached on James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And that was his sermon. His sermon blew him away. Blew him away. Spurgeon, it turns out, was one of the very first preachers who worked on communication as opposed to just standing up and speaking his mind or his text. Spurgeon wanted people to listen. There was a fella, his, his, if you remember our study of George Whitfield, Whitfield is who Spurgeon said he modeled his preaching after. But, but there was a fella who was the big talent guy that put on the play productions in London, their Broadway equivalent, who said he would pay almost any price if he could talk Spurgeon into coming on stage. He said, that guy's got drama down to his fingertips. And Spurgeon would use it. Oh, he'd walk if he had room to walk. He'd explode with his voice. He had a great booming voice that could be heard without the microphones by thousands of people. So Spurgeon gets invited to this big church and they said, we'd like to put you in on a trial basis. Three-month trial period. Spurgeon says, nah, make it a six-month trial period. You may not like me after that fourth month. They said, okay, we'll do a six-month trial basis. But after three months, they said, no, you'll do. And they hired him. And he became their preacher. And he becomes the popular guy in London. I mean, everywhere. I found some old cartoons of him that I wasn't able to scan in effectively because he becomes so popular in London that... That church won't hold them. So they decide to build a new church. And while they're building a new church, he starts to preach in other places. They rent out the Surrey Music Hall. Where 12,000 show up to hear him preach. On the inside. And 10,000 are on the outside because they can't get in. You might find this shocking, but there are some other preachers who don't particularly like him. In fact, one preacher's sermon every week was this. This week, we'll discuss what Spurgeon said wrong last week. But it's interesting to see some of these cartoons. And let's see if, if we can get them to show up here. Um, is this, I go to six? No, I go to seven. Ah, thank you. Um, some of these cartoons are... are priceless here's a cartoon that contrasts church and state from the old church let's see if i can get this that's an old fella who's uh riding a horse and buggy church and state and it's called the slow coach and they compare him to that new fella who's on the big train the spurgeon he's on the fast train as opposed to the slow coach. And they had other pictures. Some of them uh, would, would compare. This one's got a little subtlety to it. Let's see if we can bring it out here. This is Spurgeon, the young lion of the pulpit. You can see the shadow. You can kind of see the lion in it. Compared to the funny old woman of the church in the pulpit. And this is a fellow who's preaching but looks like a funny old lady through the shadow. And this is what's coming out in the papers over him. And as it comes out, uh, Spurgeon and God seem to 
find a way that it just heightens his popularity, even though some of it's critical of him. Now, let me give you, let's pull out a year of his ministry and look at it in a little more detail. 1856 was one of these years that has highs and lows in it. The high. He finally, after 18 months, convinced little Susie Spurgeon now to uh, marry him. She'd been a church member. And, oh, he went about wooing her in a special way. I tell all you young ladies out there, including my daughter Gracie, when that fella comes to you and the first thing he gives you is a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, <laughs> you know he's a guy after dad's own heart. <laughs> he could be a keeper. But it didn't seem to sweep Susie off her feet. She thought he was a country bumpkin who didn't really belong in the big city of London. But after about 18 months, he grew on her. And uh, she decided she's probably stuck with him. So they got married. And it was a wonderful marriage. They had twin boys about a year later. And uh, uh, who both grew up to be preachers, by the way. And uh, they had a wonderful, wonderful marriage of great love and, and respect and appreciation for each other. That same year, 1856, had uh, a Spurgeon preaching at that Surrey Music Hall. This was the, the sermon where he had 12,000 in there and 10,000 out. And while 12,000 are there and Spurgeon is praying, some miscreants, probably some plants who were not happy over Spurgeon and his popularity, started yelling, fire, fire. And everybody rushed out, 28 hospitalized, 7 killed in the process. Um, Spurgeon went into a deep depression. This was a man who was prone to depression, greatly filled with the heart of God but prone to the same kind of depression that I wonder if maybe David wasn't prone to because you read the Psalms and he certainly got pretty depressed too. Spurgeon withdrew from ministry for several weeks and says later that were it not for the hand of God and the love of his wife, he probably would not have preached anymore. But he got back up there. The, the, the church finished their building. They got their metropolitan tabernacle built. It would seat 6,000 or so debt-free as they went into it, and Spurgeon began preaching. Now, Spurgeon would preach up to 10 times a week. He, uh, he would work up to 18 hours a day, get by on four to six hours sleep a night. He would read six books a week to keep things going. We're going to look at some of his sermons next week. They're incredible. But his friends would come up to him constantly and say, you've got to slow down. You've got to slow down. David Livingston, the missionary doctor, Dr. David Livingston, I presume, remember, in Africa, said to Spurgeon, Spurgeon, how do you manage to do the work of two people in a single day? To which Spurgeon replied, well, you've forgotten there are two of us. I got God doing this thing with me, and I'm not doing it by myself. Then other people, don't preach too much. You're going to burn out or you're going to kill yourself. To which Spurgeon replied, oh, my God, what would Paul have said to such a thing as that? Now, I'm about God's business here. Now, that's not to say that he wouldn't take breaks because he would. You, you, a human being, you know, I would love to see our pastor, and I don't know that we'll ever get him to do it, but I would love to see a pastor who would preach maybe seven out of eight Sundays, but at least take one Sunday every other month off to refuel Spurgeon was not adverse. Spurgeon uh, uh, was, was quick to take care of himself in some ways, and he needed to because 
he had a lot of afflictions. At the age of 35, he starts uh, uh, with gout. Big swellings on his joints. Incredible pain. He goes through time periods. He says, you never know what pain is like until you find yourself thanking God because you were able to sleep for one hour without waking. He'd have to have friends come and help turn him in the bed because he couldn't turn himself. He'd have to have people help him hobble up the stairs to preach. Of course, this was the fellow who was uh, on a train one time and he'd bought a first class ticket on the train. And another minister had the third class ticket. And the other minister said to Spurgeon, I bought a third class seat ticket to save the Lord's money. Spurgeon looked at him and said, yeah, I bought a first class ticket to save the Lord's servant. (laughs) He he recognized that that there are some, you know, he, he was, I don't want to give you the impression that it was all austere. He did say, though, that affliction, his pain and his suffering is the best bit of furniture in his house. He says, it's the best book in my library. From that, I, I, I wonder as I still wonder as I read through the, here's a guy at 19 years old who is in the catbird seat. I, he becomes the most popular preacher in, in Western civilization. Largest church in Christianity at the time. How does this young man do it and not become something uppity? And I think a lot of it is, is not just the very real experience he had with God, but the affliction that he had in his life because he was leaning on God constantly. His wife, Susanna, becomes an invalid. But even as an invalid, she continues to support his ministry. What she does is she figures, if I can't go to church and hear him much of the time, I'll get the stenographers to take his sermons down and bring them back so I can read them. We'll edit them and we'll publish them. We'll sell them. And they did. And the income from that was so good. He's kind of a an, what Max Lucado has done uh, in our generation. The income from the books of the sermons was so good that he quit taking a salary from the church. He says, I'll work for free at the church. And I'll make my money off these. Now, that money that he got, he was given to the church anyway. He wasn't living too high and mighty off of it. But it's interesting. And then his wife and he would give away the the sermons to any ministers who needed them to build the minister's library. His preaching was incredible. He preached on slavery. Sermons are being sold in America, too, his sermons. The American versions, they'd have to take out these sections on slavery. Which, if we had good lawyers back then, could have done something about But anyway, for example, quote Spurgeon, wherever slavery exists, it is an awful curse and the abolition of it an unspeakable blessing. Now, this is while America is about to undergo its civil war, where these issues are very pertinent to what's going on in this country. He stood up and and, and this is just Spurgeon. He would put humor in his sermons that some people don't care about. Ah, I can't. I just gave away the punchline. Let me lay it out. Okay. Um, everybody knows what an atheist is? Atheist doesn't believe in God, right? Okay. Agnostic. It's a Greek word. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means no. And anytime in, in Greek you put the letter A in front of a word, it, it kind of means like UN does in our language. It, it means not. Okay. So, our, uh, so if gnosis is knowing, agnosis means 
not knowing. So an agnostic is not someone who doesn't believe in God. It's someone who doesn't know if there's a God, right? That's an agnostic. Okay, so Spurgeon's preaching a sermon on Romans 1. And he's talking about God and is God there and all. And he says that he's been approached by some folks who are proud to be agnostics. Well, I don't know if there's a God or not. I don't really need to know. I just live my life. Okay, he's preaching during the time of Darwin's uh, uh, origin of the species and things like that. So, well, says one, I don't care much whether there's a God or not. I'm an agnostic. Oh, Spurgeon says, agnostic. That's a Greek word, isn't it? And the equivalent Latin word is ignoramus, <laughs> which is true, by the way. The Greek word agonosis, not knowing, in Latin is ignoramus. It comes from ignorare in Latin, which means not know, to ignore. It comes from it too. Ignoramus is the Latin equivalent of agnostic in the Greek. It's just dead on accurate. It just happens to be humorous. He says, oh, the Latin equivalent is ignoramus. And then he goes on to say, says, I wouldn't want to be an ignoramus. He said, and the fellow was never as fond of his Latin name as he was his Greek name. <laughs> now, I've left out many aspects of Spurgeon's life here. He started a magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, which continued to publish till 1969. Uh, it was, it was, uh, uh, he, he would put a lot of stuff in. It was a great little magazine. Uh, I've left out many aspects of his service. I've left out his orphanage. I think maybe because he as a child grew up and understood the love of his grandparents. He had a very tender heart towards people who didn't have parents at all. He started boys' orphanages and girls' orphanages. And he would use his own money to, to start them and to support them. Uh, he would go out and preach sermons. And when he'd go out to other places and preach, the collection wouldn't go to him, it would go to the orphanage or it would go to one of these places. And, and, and it was a great thing. He was very popular. A lot of people went to hear him. There was this Dutch fella who was a seminary student who went to hear Spurgeon, read some of his sermons, and even tried to preach one or two of them. Y'all may know that Dutch student. You don't know him as much as a seminarian. He kind of left that field and made his mark as a painter. But Vincent van Gogh, was a big follower of Spurgeon's back before he had uh, so many mental and psychological issues of his own. Um, I told you about his college. You can get on the internet and you can find the website for Spurgeon's College, which is still preparing Christians for ministry uh, today. Spurgeon dies at age 57. And in that shorter life produced, I brought the I brought a book, Metropolitan Tabernacle, Tabernacle Pulpit. These are his sermons. You say, wow, he wrote a lot of sermons. No, this is volume 36. I have 63 volumes of these sermons. He has over 10 million books in publication, copies, excuse me. The, the most prolific author in terms of volume of material written uh, in, in English-speaking Christianity, I would say for certain. Um, his sermons themselves are wonderful. His funeral was attended. They had to have five funeral services to fit everybody. And the street was lined out with literally over 200,000 people as the carriage made its way through London. He accomplishes all of this at the age of 57. Now, I'm about 10 years and a week or so away from 57. 
I got to get on the stick. I don't know about you, but I got I to, I, we got to hurry. I got stuff to do. Um, and I don't even have gout as an excuse. That's right. The doctor over here chiming in from the gallery. <laughs> but I got astigmatism. No. Um, he, he was a funny guy. He had, Spurgeon got in trouble for not in trouble. One of the things people would criticize him for is telling jokes in his sermons. And he said, he said, does, he was asked, does that bother you that they criticize you for that? He said, well, to be honest with you, they wouldn't criticize me if they could climb inside my head and see how many times I thought of jokes I just didn't say. <laughs> said, I'm actually showing pretty good self-control. This is a fellow who read a book on Noah that was out at the time. Someone wrote a book on Noah. Those were real popular books in response to Darwin's origin of the species and stuff like that. And uh, uh, Spurgeon read it. Someone asked him what he thought about it. He said, that book was as dry as Noah was in the ark. So anyway, um, he's a guy who uh, also read a book one time and said, I hope this book benefited the printer because it sure didn't benefit anybody who read it. <laughs> so with that as background, I want to tell you next week we expect to hear from Spurgeon. He may be here. I don't know. Um, but uh, please come back next week as we look at some vignettes through his sermons. The points for home today. I want to take a couple of scriptures and I want to talk, I want to give you what Spurgeon said in reference to those scriptures to take you home. These are little statements out of his sermons. He was preaching a sermon on Acts twenty six twenty eight, where Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And in this sermon, Spurgeon says the following, almost persuaded to be a Christian is like the man who was almost pardoned, but he was hung. Like the man who was almost rescued, but he was burned in his house. A man that's almost saved is damned. He spoke very bluntly. Even though our language has changed some in the way we use English, the bluntness you can still get across from his Victorian dialect. Here's another one. The passage of Scripture out of Hosea where God's complaining that God's written the law, but the people aren't reading it. I've written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. You know, God's written, he's given you his word, and we don't read it, and we don't study it, and we don't ignore it. I mean, we ignore it. And on this, Spurgeon said, there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. I didn't put this one in here because I couldn't fit it on the screen. But I loved the one Dale sent me, uh, one uh, out of, uh, he was speaking, I think it was in Chronicles or whatever. It's in your points for home. But he says, some of you come to church and you're complaining because I dared to preach a sermon to the unsaved. And you're saying there wasn't any meat for you in it. No food for you because you're already saved. He said, I know pigs like that. They get real upset if there's no food for them at the table. Says every once in a while, let someone else eat and don't get upset. God may be at work. Preached a sermon on the prayer of Jabez. Ever read the book? His is a little different than the book. All right. Spurgeon's sermon on Jabez takes that passage out of Chronicles where Jabez cries out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory, and turns it into a sermon on suffering. He says, I have oftentimes looked gratefully back to my sick chamber. I am certain that I never did grow in grace half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Because he said, God enlarging your territory is not about making you richer or more famous. 
It's about him pulling you closer to his heart. That's where the riches are. And he says, and you get closer through pain and affliction sometimes more than anything else. Because you've got no other place to stand and you've got nothing else that will support you. Like God will. And so he used that passage to draw people to the heart of God. It was incredible. But it's a word of encouragement I give to you today if you're suffering and hurting. So with that, this is a warm-up for next week. But before we leave, I want you to pray with me, please. Father, I thank you so much for your good and faithful servants. And that you've seen fit throughout history, Lord, to put in, in the midst of your body certain key men and women. Sometimes they quietly touch those around them. And sometimes, Lord, they're the, 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 the one that publishes and writes and, and you use them to draw so many hearts and minister to people even today. I sit here, Lord, as, or stand here as we pray and I'm thinking of Spurgeon and, and how you worked in his life. But, Lord, I applaud your incredible, masterful plan that you had that tailor or shoe salesman or whoever it was at that little primitive Methodist church to stand up not with his own brilliance or eloquence, but with words that you have put into your Bible. He preaches a message that allows your Holy Spirit to convict and convert the heart of Charles Spurgeon. And it is my prayer, Lord, that you will put your spirit into each of us in whatever circle of influence we walk to understand we walk it hand in hand with you. And as family members, as community members, as church members, may we touch people with your love to your glory through your son. Amen.